This is Encounter on VOA. Here's Carol Castiel. Welcome to Encounter on the Voice of America on this final U.S. politics edition of 2022. Democrats gained their 51st Senate seat, ensuring control of the upper chamber next year, infighting among Republicans who will narrowly control the lower chamber or House of Representatives, and of course, the lame duck session, the weeks between Election Day and the end of the two-year term for the current 117th Congress, which is technically January 3rd, 2023. Hello again. I'm Carol Castiel. Here's what has shaken out since the November 8th congressional elections. As mentioned, the Democrats gained an extra seat in the Senate, giving them a 51 to 49 majority in the 118th Congress beginning in January 2023. Incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock beat his Republican challenger in the December 6 Georgia runoff election. No sooner did Warnock clinch that seat, delighting Democrats, than Arizona Senator Kirsten Sinema announced her departure from the Democratic Party to register as an independent. However, she has pledged to caucus with Democrats, not unlike two other independent senators, Vermont's Bernie Sanders and Maine's Angus King, allowing Democrats to control Senate committees and retain their one-seat majority. Regarding the lower chamber or House of Representatives, Republicans will take control of the lower chamber for two years as of January 3rd, 2023. But as reported previously, their margin of victory was smaller than they expected, approximately nine to 10 seats. We will break it all down with our analysts as we examine what the outgoing 117th democratically controlled Congress has achieved and has yet to achieve before their time is up at year's end. So for a year-end roundup of the U.S. political landscape, we turn to our favorite political analysts. John Fortier is political scientist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. That's a conservative think tank here in Washington. And Jim Kessler, he's executive vice president for policy at Third Way. That's a center-left policy group based here in Washington. And as always, they join me via Microsoft Teams. Gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Carol. Great to be here. So as always, John, let's start with you. Quickly on the Senate, Raphael Warnock won that seat. Uh, it's a defeat, again, one could argue, for the Trump candidates. That is his opponent, Herschel Walker. Talk about what that means for the Senate. Well, it was another disappointment for Republicans on top of hoping to get the Senate generally in the election, as well as a smaller House gain than they expected. In a way, it was a replay of 2020, where we went to the Georgia runoff and there was a Democratic victory in that runoff. It was not a huge difference in the vote from the earlier vote, but slightly more. And so Democrats can be happy to have now an extra seat, have a essentially a 51-49 majority. Uh, it's not as consequential as having the majority in the last Congress, because the president doesn't have full control of all of Congress. The House will be Republican. And so those votes that were extremely important for Democrats in this Congress, which were to pass major legislation, where they had to basically round up all of their votes and get the vice president to break a tie, those were very significant. It's slightly helpful to have an extra seat for them now. It might be slightly helpful for getting some of the nominations votes through and just generally having a little bit more of a cushion. But this last Congress, it was really very essential that they all held together. So it was not good news for Republicans on top of some other good news. But the best news for them is that they do have control of the House of Representatives. We will have divided government and Republicans will be able to make their point and not always be on the losing end of the legislative battles where they have been over the last two years. 
Turning to you, Jim Kessler, I know you love this story. Now, the Democrats have a 51st seat, not necessarily needing Vice President Kamala Harris to break tie votes. But here's something that you have indicated before. And Majority Leader in the Senate, Chuck Schumer, said, you know, this is the first time since 1934 where every Democratic incumbent won their seat with being the party in power. So that's pretty significant. But your take. I've talked to a lot of Democrats in the last few weeks, including a bunch of senators on Wednesday, and they're giddy. Congressional Democrats are really giddy. To come out of this election with 51 seats in the Senate really exceeded expectations of what Democrats thought they were able to do. And, you know, they did not keep the House, but the losses were very small, and they feel they can win the House back in a decent election in 2024. And plus, you had a leadership transition from the older generation, from you know Nancy Pelosi, Steny Hoyer, and Jim Clyburn in the House to Hakeem Jeffries, Catherine Clark, and Pete Aguilar, a younger generation. And that went very smoothly. And you look on the Republican side, particularly in the House, that leadership change, who they're going to elect for speaker, looks like chaos. So Democrats feel pretty good right now. They ought to. And I just say one final thing on that Warnock race. It was the capstone of mainstream versus extreme. Democrats mostly ran mainstream candidates. Republicans ran a mix. They had too many extreme candidates, and those extreme candidates almost all lost. When Republicans ran mainstream candidates, they did well. And the problem for Republicans is in the primaries leading up to these races, their voters, with the help of Donald Trump, made the wrong choice. Thanks, Jim. Back to you, John Fortier. There has been a curveball nonetheless. So very quickly, as I said in the introduction, Kirsten Cinema of Arizona, always a bit of a wild card, very independent. No sooner did Warnock win that race than she said, well, now I'm going to become an independent. But she said she will caucus with the Democrats. So technically, it's still a 51-49 Senate. But talk about this particular move on her part. Some people say it's more about 2024. But your take on her switch over to being an independent. Well, Kirsten Sinema, along with Joe Manchin, had been the two Democratic senators who had been essentially the swing votes, ones that Democrats had to convince to pass their major pieces of legislation. And many Democrats were not happy with them for often narrowing down the priorities and not always being on board with the bigger versions of the program. So she's had some controversy. There's been talk that she would be challenged in her own party. As for the Senate itself, it's not going to make a huge difference. One, because Democrats already have this extra seat, 51-49. And two, because she is still going to be on the Democratic side on committees and caucusing with them. So I don't think that's a big deal. One thing that will be interesting is if she runs again in two years when she's up, she's already gotten some sense that she'd be challenged from the Democratic side. And you know maybe she'll run as an independent. Maybe there'll be a very contentious primary. But in terms of the actual passage of something through the Senate, the numbers really aren't going to look very much different because of her move. So Jim Kessler, as John said, the numbers aren't going to look much more different. It's not going to necessarily have an adverse impact on the Biden agenda. Throughout the last two years, she's always been, as John said, somewhat of a maverick. So not a real big deal. More about 2024. Well, she's fallen in the Arizona tradition of Mavericks, which was John McCain beforehand and Jeff Flake, former Republican. I believe that's the seat that she took. I don't think it's going to make that much difference 
in the Senate. She wrote an op-ed in her local newspaper about switching to independent. And in that op-ed, she listed all the things in which she's still the same person. And a lot of those are women's rights, health care, LGBT rights, funding for research, helping poor people. Those are some of the places where Democrats are issues they really care about. If you look at nearly every bipartisan agreement that happened in the last two years in the Congress, she was in the middle of them. So she is quietly a very diligent and effective legislator who has great relationships with members of both parties. So I think that she'll be a factor and not necessarily a negative factor for Democrats over the next two years. Let's turn now to the Republican lineup, John Fortier. Jim Kessler mentioned a new Democratic leadership, the passing of the baton from veteran Speaker Nancy Pelosi, a formidable woman, passing the baton to Hakeem Jeffries, a black Democrat from Brooklyn. Uh, That's quite an interesting lineup, as Jim said. Take a look at now what's going on with the Republicans. Kevin McCarthy wants to become Speaker next year. But so far, there's been quite a bit of turmoil. He's had to put down some kind of a little mini revolt on the right that threatens to imperil his bid for the top job. Talk about the challenges he faces and the type of caucus we're looking at for next year. Well, first on the Democratic side, I think Jim is absolutely right that Democrats made a a very smooth transition. We've been talking about it for a while. It was a bit of a a secret that wasn't really a secret, but there were some series of older leaders who might have had hurt feelings and it was a question of what would happen and this new team coming in. The only other two things I'll say is that Nancy Pelosi, of course, was an extremely strong speaker and it's going to be hard to live up to that no matter how well Hakeem Jeffries does, but also that they're in the minority. And so again, governing there at least won't be nearly as difficult as trying to round up troops to pass a more positive agenda. On the Republican side, I will say this, Kevin McCarthy in many ways did everything right. He really spent the last couple of years really getting everybody in place within his caucus, had the support of Donald Trump, had the support of right and left. But what's happened is because the Republicans have such a narrow majority, that means he is potentially endangered to be a speaker, or at least might have to make some significant concessions because of possibly five members of his caucus willing to defect and not vote for him on the floor. The Speaker of the House is different than the other leaders in the minority and in the Senate, where you need a majority vote essentially of the whole House is a little bit of give and how you vote for that. But essentially, he needs to hold his whole caucus together and not lose very many people. If he'd had a 10-seat majority, 12-seat majority, I think we wouldn't be talking about this at all. What we have now is at least four members who seem pretty strongly willing to vote against him and a series of negotiations that he's going to have to do partly with his right. Most of the right is with him, but they're still going to look for some things. But if he goes too far in that direction, some on his more moderate side might also want some things. So we don't know what's going to happen for sure. The vote would happen early in the next Congress. But my gut is that he's going to get through this. What kinds of concessions will he have to make that might make his life more difficult down the road? We've seen speakers like Newt Gingrich go down this way, to some extent John Boehner in the middle of a Congress. So it's an unknown situation at this point. It will likely shake out in the next couple of weeks. And my guess is that Kevin McCarthy will be speaking but having to make some real significant negotiations and some concessions. Jim Kessler, do you think that Kevin McCarthy will be speaker? Will he get through this? Because in contrast to the so-called mini revolt on the right, we're seeing a lot of moderate Republicans, some from New York. They're not happy about the influence that the far right may wield vis-a-vis Kevin McCarthy. Some of them are saying, you know, they might work with Democrats if McCarthy leans too far to the right. What are your thoughts? I don't think he makes it. If you look 
at the history of leadership in the House with Democrats and Republicans. Since 1995, Democrats have had two leaders, Dick Gephardt and Nancy Pelosi, and Republicans have had seven. There's a history of kind of this roiling, weak person at the top who's challenged constantly. And there's a number two right now who's been very quiet, who I think could get those votes if McCarthy stumbles, and that's Stephen Scalise of Louisiana. So I think one of the things that hurts McCarthy is he's neither loved nor feared within his own caucus. And Stephen Scalise isn't feared, but he's loved, at least by a, a lot of folks. So my gut tells me that if you don't have your 218 now, you're not going to get your 218 in a couple of weeks. And I've talked to a bunch of Democratic lawmakers in the House, and I've asked them, who do you think is going to be the next speaker? And more often than not, the answer is not Kevin McCarthy. We will know next month in January when we see you at these microphones. And we'll discuss it at that time. But first, you are listening to Encounter on the Voice of America. Our guests are John Fortier, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, from whom you just heard. He's executive vice president for policy at Third Way. And we are looking at the political landscape at year end and previewing the 118th Congress. This is a reminder that our Encounter podcast is available on most of your favorite podcast apps. You may also download the show from our webpage, voaafrica.com slash encounter. You may also follow us on Twitter at Carol underscore Castiel or connect with us on Facebook at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Well, here's a shout out to one of our most loyal listeners of all, Tony Zola. Tony is a Laos and Thailand-based consultant specializing in human and land resources development in the greater Mekong subregion. Tony, thanks so much for your loyal listenership. If you want to hear your name and home country on the air, please send an email to encounter at voanews.com or like us and leave a comment on our Facebook page. Well, gentlemen, now it's time to turn to the uh, lame duck session, the remaining days of the 117th Congress. Yes, we will also get to the uh, digital trading cards from former President Donald Trump. But first, the lame duck session. So John Fortier, one could argue that quite a bit has already been done. It appears that the National Defense Authorization Act was passed with a compromise. We have a short-term spending bill. We also have President Biden signed into law the uh, Respect for Marriage Act, which Jim alluded to in our last discussion. He signed the Respect for Marriage Act on December 13th, codifying same-sex and interracial marriage. This was basically designed to codify the Supreme Court's 2015 ruling, Obergefell versus Hodges, to stave off any potential striking down of that, as we saw with Roe v. Wade regarding abortion rights. So with all of that, talk about what has been achieved in lame duck and what has yet to be achieved. In your view, what is a must pass in this session? Well, look, I, th I think the big thing that I will not say has been achieved, but it looks like we are on a very strong path to do it is just to essentially get our appropriations done. And that looks like with the short term agreement to spend another week to get the details right, that we are going to do that. And you know that, of course, includes general priorities, but a couple of things that people care about that are going to be attached to that, which are maybe slightly side issues. One is Ukraine funding, which there's certainly some opposition on the Republican side to continued or the levels of, of Ukraine funding that we have, although I think there's some support as well, but there certainly is 
some mixed feelings. That is almost certainly going to be done in the package, and we don't know exactly what it looks like. And then secondly, the Electoral Count Act, and that's dealing with issues relating to the counting of the votes, of the electoral votes that we saw on January 6th, and would make it clear and to try to limit some of the issues that came up in 2020. Both of those seem like they're going to get done. They have some support on the Senate side of the majority leader, where we may go past Christmas, perhaps Republicans say they don't want to, but given that we often go to the last minute, it looks like we're going to do what we should do and be done by the end of the year. And that's generally a good thing. Some Republicans were hoping that some of this might go into the next Congress and they'd have more leverage, but you know they'll have leverage at the next budget fight, which we'll see uh, during the year next year. And I think that's the big accomplishment that's likely to, to come out of this lame duck. So Jim Kessel, your take on what has been achieved thus far in the lame duck and what in your view remains to be achieved? What's on the Democrats' wish list? What's your take regarding the Electoral Count Act? What about raising the debt ceiling? What are your thoughts? Well, raising the debt ceiling is one of the things that is most likely going to be left to the next Congress. I think if you're looking at the things that didn't happen this year that you wish would happen that year, that is number one on my list. I expect the omnibus, the final package, to sweep up quite a few things. John mentioned the Electoral Count Act, which will help prevent the type of January 6th fantasies that some Trump supporters had from repeating itself. And you add to that, you look back at the elections in the Secretary of State races and they're the people in charge of electoral laws in the state. No election deniers won. So like American democracy can feel a lot better right now. If you're looking at some of the things that are missing, that are a Democratic priority and a Republican priority, the child tax credit was an economic policy that was providing money for families with children that got boosted quite a bit during the pandemic. Democrats hope to continue that. Right now, it doesn't look like it's going to make it. It's being tied to an extension of a long-time tax relief for businesses known as the Research and Development Tax Credit. Democrats said, if you're going to do one, you need to do the other. It looks like neither of them are going to make it into the final package. So there's some work to do there. And as noted earlier, the debt ceiling, which is a unique American thing where Congress has to approve additional raising of our national debt limit, that will probably hit the ceiling in June or July. And there can be some real gamesmanship and expect a Republican House to really try and leverage that to their advantage. But that always comes on the other side, a real threat to the economy. Well, we shall see what else can be achieved among those major priorities. But I would be remiss if I didn't mention the $99 digital trading cards that former President Trump is selling. He billed this as a major announcement, John Fortier. Uh, he's selling himself as a superhero, an astronaut. Sorry, it is a little amusing, I think, across the political spectrum and an old West sheriff. So he billed this as a major announcement. John, you know, he has enough troubles, as we know. Benny Thompson, chair of the House committee investigating the January 6th attack. They may be making criminal referrals. We'll get to that in a minute. But what do you make of this so-called major announcement by former President Donald Trump selling of $99 digital trading cards. Well, I think the bigger story is that there's some additional weakness that Donald Trump is in a weaker position than he was certainly before the election and probably since last year as well. Donald Trump still has strength in the Republican Party, but 
you look at polling, and that polling has gone down a bit. Uh, it's still the strongest among non-college educated whites. That's the part of the party that really is still with him. And then I think you've also seen, I don't want to say that there will be one strong challenger, but Ron DeSantis, certainly the governor of Florida, really boosted his status from already pretty high place with this election, did very well himself. And there's a sense among Republican donors, uh, big, bigger donors, not the most left or moderate wing of the establishment, but some other donors that maybe they're looking around for someone else. And I think there's a possibility that Ron DeSantis might really get a very big war chest and be seen as you know the other front runner, that there might be a two-person big race with some other smaller candidates running ahead. So I think ultimately the cards are not as important as the fact that, that Donald Trump is going to have to figure out how strong he really is and whether he has a real challenger. And I think that's very possible as we go into 2023. Yes, John, before I turn to Jim for the last word, there's no question that that's exactly what I was alluding to, that these digital cards do signal weakness. And one more thing, on December 21, the committee investigating the January 6th, 2021 assault on the Capitol uh, will be delivering its final report. And also on Monday, December 19th, the committee may be making some criminal referrals to the Justice Department, raising the prospect that they may find former President Donald Trump's efforts to cling to power after he lost the 2020 election amounted to a crime. Any thoughts regarding the January 6th committee's report and the fact that, of course, the Republican-controlled Congress next year will, in fact, dissolve that committee, making it all the more urgent for them to get this report out? Well, look, I don't think it's a good thing to have uh, potential cases going against you, uh, investigations. I don't think it's a positive thing for the president. I do think probably it's not going to have a huge political effect in that the Republicans have some arguments that the investigation was somewhat one-sided, not conducted in a typical way in Congress. So I think Donald Trump's bigger problems are political and political on his own side. Democrats, of course, have not liked him and been motivated to get him out of office for a long time. But the weakness that he may be seeing in not just the most moderate parts of the Republican Party, but more into his base and some of his former supporters. I think that's the bigger issue for him. These other things may contribute to it, but I think that's the bigger issue. Well, Jim Kessler, you get the last word. We'll have plenty of time next year to talk about 2024 and who might prevail in the Republican primaries for uh, the presidential nomination. But your take on what these digital trading cards signal you know, on the part of former President Trump and the fact that, you know, the January 6th committee is wrapping up its work, will be presenting its report on the 21st and may even make criminal referrals. Maybe we will see whether former President Donald Trump will be among those referred to the Justice Department. Well, I think it says that Donald Trump isn't quite sure that another presidential nomination is in the cards. So he's looking for some way to make some money here. Um, <laughs> the um, Look, if you compare this to a horror movie, and in some ways it is, and Donald Trump is the villain, the rule in horror movies is there's always a sequel, and the monster isn't dead until the very last scene of the very last sequel. And... I'm not so sure Donald Trump is politically dead yet. You know, there is hope among many Republican insiders that Ron DeSantis or somebody like him could unite the Republican traditionalists with enough of the Trump-style Republican voters to win the nomination and to be a mainstream candidate that could defeat Joe Biden or whoever Democrats run if Joe Biden decides not to run. But if you look at the rules of the Republican primary election, in a multi-candidate field, it really does benefit somebody like Donald Trump. The rules are different on the Republican side than on the Democratic side. And just as an example, 
In South Carolina in 2016, Donald Trump won 32 percent of the vote in a multi-candidate field and won every single one of the delegates. So, you know, there is also a history of front runners in the Republican primary who look like they were dead and then came back. And, you know, John McCain was one of those in 2008. You know, he was left for dead for a period of time, too. So I think there are a lot more chapters in this Trump story. And I would still say at this point, he is the more likely nominee in 2024 for Republicans. He's not a lock. I just would say he's likely. Gentlemen, on that note, that's all the time we have on this final 2022 U.S. politics edition of Encounter. I would like to thank you both, John Forty, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and Jim Kessler, executive vice president for policy at Third Way. Gentlemen, it's been a great year. Thanks, as always, for a great conversation. And I look forward to talking with you next year in mid-January to take the measure of our political landscape. Encounter was produced in Washington with technical assistance from Rick Pantaleo. I'm Carol Castiel. Join me again next week for another Encounter Top Stories of 2022. That's next on The Voice of America.